Well, if you were older than seventh grade, then you are stuck with me. So uh, go ahead and grab a Bible and point that Bible or tap on your Bible app to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It is good to see you. As I mentioned, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here and it's my honor and privilege again to uh, be with you and to walk through this wonderful book of the Bible, one of my favorites. And uh, here at Cornerstone, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. And today we are in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. If you're new to the Bible, please just grab one from the chair under you, uh, under you or in front of you and um, turn it to page 557. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You'll find the big 9 at the bottom right-hand corner. And we're going to read that uh, all the way down to verse 12. And then uh, I'll pray for our time together and then we'll get to work. It should be 45 minutes or so. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Here at Cornerstone, we are committed to doing two things well, uh, the Word of God and prayer. We try to do other things. Sometimes we do them well. Most of the time we make mistakes, but uh, two things we're going to commit ourselves to do well, and that is the Word of God and prayer. And I'm thankful that to be a part of a, a church where that is the case. And so by God's grace, let's try and do that again this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'll pray. This is the word of the Lord. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. 
For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net. And like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time. When it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray together. Lord, we've already heard, great is the Lord. And he instructs sinners in his way. Would you instruct us, sinners, in your ways? Would you open our eyes and our ears? Would you enable us to hear your word this morning? To pay attention to it? Give us faith to believe in it? Help it to address the sin in our life, our need for Jesus. And enable us to turn from sin and trust you to be refined by you, to become more like you, to be a greater conduit of your grace and the proclamation of your gospel, the good news of your kingdom to all we encounter. For Jesus' sake and for Jesus' praise, amen. The great nation of Canada has made many contributions to the world. Some examples, telephones, insulin, snowmobiles, of course, walkie-talkies, sonar, ice hockey, of course, electron microscopes, plexiglass, peanut peanut butter, may God be praised, (laughs) Superman, Justin Bieber. Jim Carrey, Mike Myers, Celine Dion, William Shatner, Michael J. Fox, and hip-hop artist Drake. The contributions of the latter are debatable, I suppose. However, several years ago, Drake popularized the acronym YOLO. You've heard of this? YOLO, you only live once. Drake thinks he invented YOLO. However, YOLO has been around for a long time. In my deep, extensive, and worthwhile research on this matter, I discovered that there was an English writer in the 1700s who put YOLO in a novel. There was a Scottish preacher in the mid-1800s who used it to encourage his people to, you know, make most of every day and for the Lord as best they could. There was even a 1937 film starring Henry Fonda, called You Only Live Once. Drake hardly introduced the world to YOLO. And predating Drake and all the others is the main speaker of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a rich king's journey to discover the meaning of life under the sun. He calls himself the preacher, and he's made many interesting discoveries along the way. Mostly, he's learned... There's not much that can be learned. Whatever the meaning of life is, it is fleeting. It is difficult to find, difficult to see, difficult to hold on to. And he likens it to a fog or a mist. Hevel is the word he uses in his own language. Whatever the meaning of life is, it's vain, vanity. It's, in your Bible, probably translated as meaningless or vanity. Life is hevel. It's a fog. It's hard to see, impossible to hold on to. It's here, but not here. 
Now, the preacher's not saying that there isn't meaning in life. He's just saying that the meaning of life is hard to find. We have to trust that as creatures who are in the mist, the creator has a reason for the mist. And one of the big lessons of Ecclesiastes is that we ought to sit down at the dinner of life and clean our plate, accept what the Lord has for us, and trust that He knows what He's doing. On the surface, much of that we read in, in the book of Ecclesiastes feels like a downer. You know, he's all, all talking about meaninglessness and death, and, you know, he's just not the kind of guy you would invite to your wedding reception in case he would get the mic and be like, congratulations to the happy couple. But none of this matters because you're all going to die. But it's a really important book because it reminds us that God is God and we are not. And when we try to be God, we screw things up. Ecclesiastes is raw and real and honest. It inoculates us against a perfectionism an idealism that we sometimes expect from life. But life is not like that. Life isn't perfection, an ideal. Like, if they turned Ecclesiastes into a movie, they wouldn't play it on the Hallmark Channel. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's what makes it so important, because it's relatable. God made the world crooked. And there's nothing we can do to make it straight. Well, the crookedness of the world that God has made comes out in two forms in the passage before us today in chapter 9. First, the certainty of death. So if you have a a program on the backside of your worship guide, you can follow along if you like. The first point we'll make is that death is certain. The second point about the crookedness of the world is that life is not certain. Life is uncertain. And like many other parts of the book, the main point of this passage, as best as I can tell, comes in the middle when the preacher tells us to get serious about enjoying life. And because we like to have our conclusion at the end, that's how we'll do it today. We're going to structure it like this. We're going to look at the first six verses first, and then we'll skip to the bottom, to the second point, and then we'll make the main point at the end. Here's the summary of this passage. You can see this in the, in the worship guide. Other than death, not much is certain in life under the sun. So get serious about enjoying God's pleasures. In other words, yellow. The certainty of death. Let's read verses 1 to 3 again. But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Well, it's the same for all since the same event happens to everyone. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the evil, the clean, the unclean. The one who sacrifices, the one who takes the day off. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And so is he who swears and the one who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Verse 1 says, everything is in the hand of God. The righteous and the wise and their deeds. 
are in the hand of God. Well, that's a sentence that most of us should find rather comforting. Everything you do, everything that is done, is in the hand of God. God is sovereign. We, we speak often of God's providence. It's like a warm blanket, knowing that God is in control of all things. It's the next sentence, however, that fi- I find to be a bit unsettling. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. When I look at the world around me, I consider the circumstances of my life. Sometimes I can't tell whether God hates me or God loves me. I mean, I, I think I believe mostly that God loves me. But then I go Christmas shopping at Walmart, and then I wonder whether God hates me. The preacher's still hammering on this nail until it finally sinks in and grabs. Whatever sense you and I have that life under the sun is predictable by some kind of you do a good deed and then you get good things formula, that's just wrong. It's just wrong. God is not a vending machine. It's not like if you read the Bible a whole lot this week and then you pray more than you usually pray, the vending machine of life is going to drop out this plastic bag full of ease and comfort. That's just not how the world works. There is no formula. Verse 2, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. So whether you're good or evil, whether you're clean or unclean, whether you offer sacrifices or don't, whether you make promises or don't, it's the same event. This, the preacher says, is evil. How we long for a formula How we long for a predictable outcome, something that we can control, something I know I can do and will guarantee a result. But the preacher says you just can't. The same event happens to all. The second half of verse 3 is just great. I love it. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So everyone's evil, everyone's nuts, and everyone gets dead. That's probably my favorite verse in this whole book. You can keep that in your back pocket for Christmas shopping. Everyone's evil, everyone's crazy, and everyone's going to die. Merry Christmas. But that's not the point of the verse. Here's the point. God has made man upright, and he has sought out many schemes. The first humans God created disobeyed God's commandments. And they introduced sin into the world. They sought to be their own gods. And their sin, from disobeying God's commandments, was passed on to their children. And their children passed it on to their children, who passed it on to their children, who passed it on to your parents, who passed it on to you. Such that this sin, this cancer, this death sentence... Is, 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 is in all of us. We're all infected by it. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Death, because of sin, happens to all of us because all of us sin. Death is probably the most natural thing we know. Everything we know dies. TVs die, cars die, batteries die. If you eat meat, it's because an animal died and it's your fault. 
If you eat plants, it's because a plant died. It's your fault. Everything we know dies. It's natural. Yet something deep down in us rejects that. We don't want things to die. Some of you have pets. You don't want your pets to die, but you all know that it's going to happen, right? You know that, right? I'm really sorry to tell you that, but eventually they will expire. That, that's part of life. We don't like that. We don't want that to happen. Something in us hates death. We don't want things to die. Unless it's a spider. Some of you are the most peaceful, gentle people on the planet, but you see a spider and you turn into a maniac with a death wish. But death is natural, and yet something in us rejects killing and death and dying. Well, what does that tell us? If death is so natural, why do we reject it? Could it be that death might not be natural? When God created the world, there was no death. Could it be that our aversion to death is because we know deep down that's not the way it's supposed to be? And God made us to love life and to love living. The preacher goes on in verse 4 to 6. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they'll die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 4, he says, A living dog is better than a dead lion. And I'm afraid the force of that is lost on us. Many of us have dogs as pets. In the preacher's day, they didn't have dogs as pets. Dogs were mangy scavengers, not pets. Domestic dogs are a fairly new thing. You know that dogs were bred from wolves, right? So that little Yorkshire Terrier that your neighbor has, that's man-made, right? You know, like... Darwinism did not create that thing. Survival of the fittest did not create a Yorkshire Terrier. He's saying it's better to be a mangy, scavenging dog than to be a king of beasts and be dead. And the reason is that the living know that they're alive. They work and they receive their reward and they serve the Lord and they give and they love and they create and they build. But the dead do none of that. You know, just strictly looking at the world without an eternal perspective, just the world as we see it. When you die, you just die. There's nothing more you can do. It's over. big idea of verse 1 to 6 is that death is the most certain thing in life under the sun. And it is coming for all of us because all of us are sinners. And we ought to use the time that we have here in this life to the fullest. David Gibson in his little book on, on Ecclesiastes writes this, dying people who truly know they're dying are among the people most alive. That's kind of what The preacher's getting at in verse 1 to 6. 
Remember, the Bible teaches us to number our days. And it's good to accept our limits. How we die, when we die, is outside of our control. The point is this. Death is certain. And the second point is, life is not certain. So skip down to verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. How many of you expected to read that in the Bible? For man does not know his time. Like fish are taken in an evil net and the birds are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Again, he's hammering on this nail. There is no formula. A plus B doesn't always equal C. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The best fighter doesn't always win the fight. The best team doesn't always win the game. Sometimes the Pittsburgh Steelers win the Super Bowl. That's life in a sin-stained world. We like to think the wise and intelligent person, their life turns out better than the foolish person. We like to think that people who succeed do so because of their merits. We like to think that a smart investor makes the most of their money and they retire well. We like to think that a good, moral, hard worker will get a promotion. We like to think that a good parent will always raise good kids. And these things are often true. Mostly true. But sometimes not true. Sometimes life is like movies on the Hallmark Channel. Sometimes the widow with two kids comes home for Christmas and meets the nice, small-town, handsome guy with the great hair, and they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. Sometimes life happens like that. But sometimes she runs off with the chain smoker on the loud motorcycle. That's just life under the sun. But why does it bother us when A plus B doesn't always equal C? Why does the preacher seem to keep hammering this point? Week after week, we just keep hearing the same thing. Could it be that he would have us loosen our grip on the idea that we control the life we live? If the race is always to the swift, well then to win, I just have to figure out how to be fast. And when I win, it's because I worked hard and did it myself. If you get rich because you're smart with money, then all I need to do is read good books and invest well and be smart. And when it happens, it's because I built the riches. And therefore, those who are broke, those who lose in life, those who have rebellious kids, it's their fault. And so we see enough examples of that, that that's our expectation of how life should work. But in verse 11, we read, time and chance happen to all. Literally, verse 11 reads, time and happenings happen to all. 
Some fish get caught in a net while some swim free. It's not like the smartest fish live, but the dumbest ones become fish tacos. It's random. It's not like some birds who are smart never get trapped. It's random. It's unexpected. It's sudden. Things happen. Death comes to all, and we don't know how, we don't know when. These things are not in our control. My non-Christian friend, I'm glad that you came to church today. I think you should take what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying to heart. You might take exception with a lot that you hear here today, but one thing you shouldn't take exception on is, is this. Your life will end one day, and you're not in control of that day, when it happens or how it happens. And you might be convinced that this life is all that there is, that when you die, you just simply die. But can I just ask, how do you know that? Who told you that, and how did they know that? Have they been beyond life that doesn't exist, and then came back and told you it doesn't exist? Or you might think that uh, I've been a good enough person and I've had good enough intentions in my life to meet some minimum standard in order to get into heaven. I mean, not the best person in the world, but, you know, I've, I'm a good person. God will be nice to me on the last day. Again, how do you know? What is that minimum standard and who sets that minimum standard? If you believe yourself to be good enough, Is there anyone who isn't? And how do you know? Here's what Christians have known for 2,000 years. There is a God. There is a life after life. And there is a standard. And that standard has been set by God. And that standard is above all of us. None of us are good enough to earn eternal life. All of us have broken God's commandments, His minimum standard. But God, in His great kindness, wrapped Himself in human form. And Jesus Christ lived the minimum standard. And we sinners, people just like us, murdered him on a cross. But that cross was part of God's plan. And on that cross, God laid our sin, our breaking of God's commandments on his own son. And remember when I said the wages of sin are death? That wage that you owe to the Lord for the sin you've committed against him was laid on Jesus and he died. But three days later, Jesus was raised to life. And his eternal life, that resurrection life, is gifted to any and all who will turn from their sin and trust him. This is how we know all this is true. Jesus' grave is empty. Jesus came back to new life. Thus, those who are in Christ have eternal life. 
if you've started to believe that, you should tell someone. Whoever invited you to church today, tell them. Or talk to me or Pastor Brent after the service today. We would be delighted to lead you to Jesus Christ where you can be forgiven of your sins and be given eternal life. Well, death is certain. Life is unpredictable. These are the good limitations that our God has placed on all of us. And we would do well to embrace those limitations and allow those limitations to cause us to appreciate the gift of life. To make the most of every day for God's glory, to appreciate and be thankful for the good gifts of God that He is happy to give to His people. That's the third section of this passage. And this is where we'll finish out our time together, verses 7 to 10. Go, the preacher says. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life, the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you're going. In light of the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life, the preacher gives you five things to do. Five things. With these five things, we'll wrap our time together. But before we get to the first one, I do want to direct your attention to the first word there in verse 7. Go. In almost every translation, it's the word go. In the original language, it, it means to walk with particular attention from one place to the next. It's an imperative verb, meaning it is a command of action. You are being commanded. It requires obedience. So if you've been told that Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts, well, you're partly right about that. Here are five do's, five things you must obey. First, your first command. Enjoy good food. Some of you grew up in churches where being a good Christian meant that you would just abstain from everything that's fun. Holiness came by abstention. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And we shouldn't forget the fact that in the beginning, our God created two naked people in a garden surrounded by food. Pleasure preceded sin. I'm going to say that again. Pleasure preceded sin. Taste buds, that's God's idea. God didn't have to make a peach taste so sweet. But he did. God didn't have to make a sunset so beautiful. But he did. God didn't have to make a cow out of steak, but he did. Because he's a good God. The Bible teaches that we pursue holiness, not at the expense of joy, but because of joy. Christians recognize that sin doesn't actually offer joy. Author Tony Reinke writes, Sin 
is joy poisoned. Holiness is joy postponed and pursued. Christians understand that sex, sugar, shopping bring joy. But there's greater joy in Christ. Not at the expense of the others, but underneath it, inside it, through it. And it's this way even with good food. By enjoying good food in the here and now, we look backwards and we look forwards. By enjoying good food right now, we look back to the time before sin where humans ate good food in the nude and never gained weight. We look backwards. But then we also look forward to the time in heaven where the Lord promises He will spread out a feast before His people. We are going to enjoy good food in heaven. Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich Food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So yes, you are being commanded this morning, Cornerstone. You're being commanded to enjoy good food to the glory of God. We are meant to enjoy these things. For them to cultivate in us a longing for heaven. A longing for Eden to be restored to us. So many Christians have this bizarre idea of heaven, that it's this sort of far-off place where nothing is familiar, fat babies floating on clouds playing harps or some bizarre weirdness. But Cornerstone, heaven is coming to earth. Read the last few chapters of your Bible. Jesus says that he come, He's coming to make all things new, not all new things. Heaven is going to be very familiar, very earthy. The pleasures of this life are a foretaste, literally, of the life to come. Where we will enjoy them with the Lord Jesus, without sin, for age upon age. Second commandment, from the Lord your God to you, his people. Enjoy good drink. The preacher says, drink wine with a merry heart. Drink wine with a merry heart. Now we have to understand that there are limits to all of this. And that's good because in this life, the pleasures, which even though they create in us a longing for heaven, and they call us back to the pleasures uh, before sin, there are limits on our ability to enjoy them today. For example, you can enjoy good food, but you're limited. If you enjoy too much good food, what happens? You get sick. You have to take antacids. It's the same thing with good drink. If you enjoy too much good drink, you get drunk, which is sin. Many Christians have decided to avoid alcohol altogether. Some struggle with moderation. And so they avoid alcohol altogether. And that's good. That's the right decision. Read Romans 14. Wine in the days of Ecclesiastes was a drink of celebration. The principle is the same. 
enjoy a good celebratory drink to the glory of God. Whatever that is. For the preacher, it was wine. For you, it might be coffee, like it is for me. Just make sure that you're enjoying good coffee, right? Good matters. If, if your coffee is coming out of a can, that might be sinful. I don't know. It has... Some of you, it might be Diet Coke or Perrier or some weirdo may enjoy celebratory Gatorade or something. I don't know. Whatever the drink is, drink unto the Lord and celebrate with a merry heart. This gift the Lord has given you. Notice the last part of verse 7. God has already approved what you do. That word approved, most of the time it appears in the Bible, it means pleased. Pleased. God is pleased to give His children good gifts that bring them joy. God is pleased to give His children good gifts that bring Him joy. God isn't in heaven. He's this cosmic killjoy. Like, barking commands, you better obey me, and don't you dare enjoy a minute of it. God the Father is a Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You know that feeling you get when you give someone a gift? You know that feeling you get when it's so enjoyable to just see them enjoying the thing you gave to them or the thing you made for them? Where do you think that comes from? It could be from millions of years of evolutionary biology, which created some reward system in your brain to keep you to be nice to people. Or it could come from a deeply personal, relational, heavenly father who, like you, loves to give gifts to his children. Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is a giver. Commandment number three. Dress nice and smell good, literally. Verse eight, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Dress nice, smell good. White garments and oil in the preacher's day were symbols of joy. People in distress would wear sackcloth and put ashes on their head. People who are full of joy would wear white. Festive occasions, you wear white. Put oil on your head to smell nice. People who are full of joy, you can see it on them. It's infectious. It spills out of them. It's communicated in how they carry themselves. It seems to me It is incompatible with Christian teaching and practice to always be grumpy. A beautiful, glorious God saved you by His grace based on nothing you said or did. What do you have to be mad about? We still just walk around like Jesus is still in the grave. It's good to be serious about things. But let's just be serious about the things we should be serious about. And one of the things that we should be serious about is delighting in God's pleasures. 
fourth commandment from the Almighty God upon His people. Enjoy good relationships. Specifically in verse 9, enjoy the life you have with the wife whom you love. If you're married, enjoy life with your spouse. One of the most important elements to a healthy marriage is a good friendship. And one of the most miserable things I've seen in my short life on this planet has been a friendless marriage. It is miserable. The Lord has been gracious to my wife and I. I think we both married our best friends. And by God's grace, we continue to be married to our best friend. And most of our marriage, we've taken one night out of the week to work on our friendship. We call it a date. And sometimes it is a date. Sometimes we go to a nice dinner, enjoy a meal together. But sometimes we're broke. We can't afford good food, so we just hang out and run errands together. And we try to protect those nights. I generally don't take calls. I generally don't take appointments. Sometimes we share that night with others. But it's mostly just about us spending time together, working on our friendship, something I look forward to every single week. Sarah is my best friend, and I enjoy every moment I get with her. So here's the idea. If you're married, be intentional about enjoying one another in every way possible. Let the reader understand. If you're married, be enjoyable. Bring joy to your partner, to your spouse, in every way possible. Let the reader understand. If you're not married, be intentional about enjoying good relationships with friends. But you have to work on that. It just doesn't come on its own. It needs intentionality. Just understand that what you're enjoying here and now, just like with food, it calls backwards and it calls forwards. It calls back to the time when it was just two people in wonderful, sinless relationship with one another. It calls forward to the time where we will have unbroken fellowship with our God and King and one another. It's part of a foretaste of heaven that God gives to His children today to enjoy, to cause us to long for its fulfillment in Christ in eternity. And it's a command. Last one, number five. You're going to love this one. Work hard. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Hard work might not sound like, you know, a blessing, a pleasure that God gives to you. Something to enjoy. But it really is. Ask anyone who's been without work what a pleasure it is to find and to hold on to gainful employment. Whatever job you have, the preacher says, do it well. Work hard. God has built into your brain a reward system that when you work hard and you accomplish something, it feels good. 
That's a good thing. Work is not a part of the curse. Like pleasure, work preceded the fall in the Garden of Eden. So work, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. How's that saying go? Anything worth doing is worth doing well. I would add, anything worth doing is worth doing well to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23, one of the first verses that my dad had me memorize as a kid. Whatever you do, work heartily. I'm seeing that you had like a hidden motive here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily. Not for men, but for the Lord. Notice the preacher says, whatever your hand finds to do. Maybe you're in a job that you don't particularly care for. Maybe you're in a job that you didn't think was going to be your job when you were 25. Maybe when you were 18, you thought that you'd be just a baller. But now you're 40 like me and you can barely you know, pay the bills, right? Maybe that's where you are. But the, the preacher's not saying work hard when you get the job that you actually want to do. Because when you were 18, you didn't know nothing about the world. Whatever your hand finds to do, work hard there. Because you're not working for your boss. You're working for the Lord. I'm convinced that God cares much more about your sanctification than He does about your vocation. I mean, you could go to school for a long time and become an attorney or become a medical doctor. And you can be a great doctor to the glory of God, sanctified. But you could decide to go a different route and pick up trash for a living. And you could be a sanctified trash picker-upper. That's what matters. It doesn't matter your vocation. What matters is your sanctification before the Lord. Notice the preacher's reasoning. Might seem a little demotivating. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in death, which is where you're going. Today's all you get. You work hard today. That's what he's saying. You can work hard to anticipate tomorrow, but you can only work hard today. You can't work hard tomorrow. Tomorrow doesn't exist. You can only work hard today. Whatever shift you have, that's the one you work hard for. Don't be the kind of person who says, well, I'll work hard when it comes to that, or I'll push that off to later, and then I'll get serious about this job, or when I get the job I actually want, then I'll be serious about working hard for the Lord. Today is all you get. Whoever said it, YOLO. You only get this life, you only get today. The pleasures the Lord has given you can only be had in the moment. There is much we don't control. There is much that doesn't make sense. But one thing we do know is that in Christ, there's freedom from sin. And there is pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Please stand for the prayer of confession. If you're new, at the end of our service, we take a moment and we go before the Lord uh, with the text still fresh in our minds, and we ask the Lord to forgive us of the uh, sins that He has exposed from His Word. And so uh, if you would just take a moment with me, and we'll pray together a prayer of confession regarding these things. Father in heaven, your grace is sufficient for us. We recognize, Lord, our weakness. 
that we are a people in the midst of the mist of life under the sun. Much is hard to see. We cannot predict the future and we can't control the future. And we thank you for reminding us that today is all that we have. And we thank you for helping us to see how much we need you. Would you forgive us for not walking rightly before you? We are creatures. You are the creator. Forgive us for not prioritizing what ought to be a priority and for prioritizing the things that ought not to be priority. Will you forgive us from acting like we're in control? Would you enable us, Lord, to see and to know your purposes and to align ourselves with that? Enable us to turn from sin and trust Jesus. We repent for expecting our life to match up with our ideals and then despairing when it doesn't. Forgive us for perfectionism and idealism. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and for the hammer just keeps pounding on the nail to draw us away from these things and to embrace you and the life you have given for us to live. We repent, Father, for sullenness, for godlessness, irritation. We recognize this is just a lack of our faith. And we ask that you would enable us by your Spirit to trust you more faithfully, more fully. Would you grant to us the gift of faith? Would you fill us with the joy of the Lord Jesus? Would you motivate us by what drove him? Will you increase our longing for the true joy of bringing glory to God? And would you enable us to see the joy-killing poison of sin? Will you keep us from being so easily pleased that we settle for these fleeting pleasures instead of the lasting joy of serving you faithfully? We ask these things so that our lives would bring the greatest amount of glory to Jesus as possible. For He is worthy of our love, worthy of our lives. We thank You for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.